And we start in Mark, verse 14 and 15, at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. This is sort of the bit where things really get kicking along. And, and in that way, the Bible is kind of like a lot of old novels. I've been reading some Dostoevsky recently, and uh, like a lot of his books, if you can see in my Bible where Mark is, you're several hundred pages into the book, you're closer to the end than the beginning, and suddenly you work out who the main protagonist is. <laughs> and partly that might be with the Dostoevsky because of the, because of the Russian names. You don't really know who anyone is until that far into the book and you start to get the hang of how those names work. But it feels like if you were reading this thing cover to cover, you've been going a long way before you get uh, to the Gospels until you get to Jesus and his ministry. And he starts it off with this phrase, the time has come, where... In my Bible, 909 pages into the thing. And now the time has come. This is the beginning of the climax of the story that the Bible has been telling. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is the message that the Jewish people have been waiting centuries to hear. And now here it is. They get to it. And the first thing... We see in the book of Mark that Jesus does after he does this, after he announces that the kingdom of God has come near, is he gathers together his team. He goes out and he gets together his squad. I was trying to work out whether I had a good illustration to deal with this, uh, and I immediately went to uh, Taylor Swift. <laughs> but then her new song came out and realised that the whole Taylor squad thing is a thing of the past and she's going it alone, so... That failed. We won't do that at all. I thought I'd just mention it, though, because I took the time to Google Taylor. Um, we're mainly going to be focusing in on verse 17 and looking at these couple of ideas of follow me, fishing for people, and then finishing off by looking at now. What, what does that actually mean for us today? That's going to be the focus. Like I said, this is about six months' worth of small groups material that I've tried to distill into one sermon, which means I'm going to try and do two things. I'm going to try and say enough that it's not just a big, vague picture where you can't sort of dig in and see any of, any of the details or pull anything out of it and pra- that's, that's practical. But also I don't want to say too much that we're zoomed out way too far and you, you, you don't really know. There's just way too much to cope with in one message. So I'm going to try and say enough but not say too much. So we'll see how that goes. I'm going to look at follow me, fishing for people and what that means. Jesus is out walking along the lake. He sees two brothers, Simon, who uh, we know is also called Peter, and his brother Andrew. And he says to them, come, follow me. More literally, he's saying, come behind me. Come, like, literally be behind me, follow me. Where I go, you go now. And what we sort of see in this language is the idea of discipleship. And we see Jesus setting himself up as something of a rabbi that people will follow. Um, I don't know if any of you are familiar with the the book The Cost of Discipleship by Bonhoeffer. The title of that in German is closer to the word follow or be a follower. Uh, And we call it discipleship. This language of follow is discipleship language. It sets Jesus up as a rabbi who has disciples coming after him. But Jesus doesn't do it the way he should do. He sort of doesn't follow the standard procedure of a rabbi picking his disciples. 
there was something of a normal process. Let me just give you a side note before I go into that on sort of a bit of the historical method that I'm, that I'm using to get to this idea. Uh, we have a fair bit of writing from around the time of Jesus, uh, sort of a, a generation or so either side. The Bible, the New Testament, not least, but there's other stuff as well, uh, and actually probably more than a lot of people think. But not heaps and heaps and heaps, and especially not heaps that have sort of the fine details of everyday life. We do have a lot of stuff from sort of another hundred years on after Jesus. So what historians tend to do is they look at that stuff from a little bit later on, and they look at what they have at the time, and then they try and read that into what they know of this time and sort of extrapolate a little bit. So that means there's, there's some bits where we know details and there's other bits where we can sort of go, well, we know that this was happening, uh, you know, a hundred years later and we kind of know that this was happening then so we can piece that together and get an idea of what it looked like. Um, an average Jewish kid would have had some sort of education. They would have gone to uh, the synagogue and received some schooling. What they would have likely done uh, is memorised the Torah, or at least given it a crack. Over a few years, and sort of what I guess you could call primary school, they would have memorised the first five books or so of the Bible, and through that they would have uh, sort of got a little bit of a handle on literacy. They would have learned some basic mathematics. They would have learned about their culture and the laws that they follow. This was sort of the plan for... Your, your average Jewish kid, at least the ones who were living in any sort of urban centre who had a synagogue nearby. Uh, and then they'd get to around 12, 13 years of age and they'd stop. Education sort of didn't go beyond that for the average Jewish kid. They would uh, likely go back and take up their parents' trade or prepare to get married. That's what they'd do, most people. The really bright ones, though, the ones who nailed that whole memorising hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of words of the Torah, who had a mind for it, would probably go on to some sort of further education, kind of like, I guess, a high school sort of thing. Not quite, but they would continue through uh, studying more of their scriptures and learning more and more and beginning to study what the rabbis were teaching and what uh, the priests were teaching and, and get this uh, these things further and further in their head. And then the really good ones, the really good ones, the top of the class would try and become the disciples of a master. How that process usually worked is you would work out who you wanted to follow, you would learn every single thing you could about them, and then you would go to them and you would do something of an interview process where they would ask you questions. They would say, what is your point of view on this? What does Rabbi so-and-so say on this? What does this verse in this bit of the Bible mean? And if you answered well enough, if you could convince them that you knew what they were on about, that you were the right sort of person, they would then choose you to be their disciple. Only the best of the best became the disciples of a master. And they would pick who they'd want. They would get it everything they could in their head, kind of like a job into a view, I guess, to really nail it so that they got picked. Jesus is coming across a couple of guys who are working for their dad fishing. This is the equivalent of your school dropout. These guys had done the initial bit of education, maybe if they were lucky. If their families were particularly poor, they may have missed out even on that. And now they're working as fishermen. They're sort of not fulfilling the key criteria of a disciple, of a rabbi. 
And furthermore, they're not even looking for that. They're at work. They're doing their job. They're providing for their family. And Jesus goes to them. This is not the normal process. Jesus' process is actually subverting the normal process. He goes to a couple of fishermen and he says to them, come follow me. Let's talk a little bit about what a disciple will do. And we're going to jump a little bit around the book of Mark and a little bit around some other bits as we look at this. There are sort of three main things. If you want to try and summarise up what a disciple did, they wanted to be with their teacher. We see that's what uh, Simon and Andrew do. The first thing they do is they leave their nets and follow him. They leave behind their old life and they go and follow behind Jesus. They be with their teacher. They become like their teacher And they do what their teacher did. We see over and over again in the first couple of chapters of Mark, and it's the same in Matthew and the same in Luke, people leaving their lives to become followers of Jesus, leaving behind their profession, leaving behind their families even, and following after Jesus. And this is what a disciple did. If you got picked to be the disciple of a rabbi, that was your life for years. And literally, you would follow them every single place they went. You would eat where they ate. You would sleep with them. Every single thing they did, wherever they went, you would be right behind them. And we see this. If you, if you read through the Gospels, you'll see that the disciples are always with Jesus. And in fact, the Gospels go to great length to point out when Jesus manages to get away from his disciples, when he goes off to pray, or when he goes off to spend some time alone. That's something that they bother spending the words to tell us is happening. Because disciples stick with their master. Jesus actually has to be a bit sneaky and wake up before everyone else is even awake to be able to get away from his disciples. There's this sort of uh, rabbinical saying that, they, uh, that sort of floats around a little bit. It, it comes uh, from the Talmud and it's this idea that the goal of a disciple is to be covered in the dust of their rabbi. There's some debate about exactly what that means, whether that's referring to sitting at their feet in the dirt as they teach, or whether that's referring to following so closely behind them as they walk that the dust covers them. But either way, the idea is clear. You want to be so close to this person that when they brush off their cloak, it covers your cloak. The goal of discipleship is to be with Jesus. The goal of Christian discipleship is to be with Jesus. It's to become like Jesus. In Luke chapter 6, which is kind of uh, Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, some people call it the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus is going through a whole bunch of teaching and then he gets to this bit uh, where he says, uh, he sort of has a crack at the, the Pharisees, some of the other sort of disciples and masters and then he he talks about his own Uh, he says let me just find the verse here sorry he also told them this parable can the blind lead the blind will they not both fall into a pit the student is not above the teacher but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher the goal of being the disciple of a rabbi is not to set up necessarily your own academic career your own religious leadership career, but it's to perpetuate the teachings and the idea of your master. You learn every single thing that they do, what they say, how they teach, how they do things, and then you then continue on doing that, and then your followers do that. It's to perpetuate these ideas. It's to become like the master. 
The goal of Christian discipleship is to be with Jesus, is to become like Jesus, and then it's to do what Jesus did. If you flick forward, I don't know if you have your Bibles open in front of you, but if you flick forward into uh, Mark chapter 3, in verse 13, 14, 15, around there, we get the passage where Jesus appoints the 12. We get the full list of all of the 12 uh, disciples, the sort of inner circle of Jesus' followers. Jesus goes up on a mountainside. He calls to them those he wanted. He appoints them that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. He calls them to him, to be with him, to become like him so that he can send them out to do what he has been doing. They too are going to be preachers. They too are going to drive out demons. They follow on in the ministry that Jesus has set them on. We see this again uh, in Mark later on. And I have written down my reference wrong, so I'm going to skip over it and go to another one. this is just the 12, right, in Mark chapter 3. It's just these 12 closest ones. But there's this passage you might remember in Luke chapter 10 where he sends out a bigger group of 72 and he sends them out to do the same thing, to, to teach and to preach and to tell that the kingdom has come near. So he's got this inner circle of people who are following behind him, who are learning from him that he throws out. And then there's this slightly bigger group of people who are following a little bit further behind him but who are also listening to his teaching and who he also equips to send out to spread on this teaching. Probably the most famous example of Jesus doing this is the Great Commission at the end of Matthew. If your Bible is open at Mark chapter 1, it's just the page before. And again, he's up on a mountain, just like he was in Mark 3. And he says to his disciples that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The goal of Christian discipleship is to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus and to do what Jesus did, to preach that the kingdom of God has come near to teach people to repent and believe the good news, to be baptised in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and to obey everything that Jesus has commanded them. But Jesus hasn't said any of this to these two guys. They're going to learn this as they go on, as they follow Jesus for about three years, as they see him hung up on a cross and killed as they see him again raised to new life and go with him up on a mountain where he empowers them to bring this message to all the nations. But at the moment, all they get is, I will send you out to fish for people. We get the advantage of hindsight. Simon and Andrew followed on, come follow me and I will send you to fish for people. So they're called to follow And they're called, and in some way they're promised that they will fish for people. And what does that mean? Uh, In some ways, I think it's easy for us to interpret it kind of like as a cute little saying. It's a sort of thing that might end up on, you know, a Christian T-shirt or something like that. Or even I think we, we sometimes just, like, quickly move over it as if it's a pun or something like that. And it's like, all right. 
So they're fishermen, and now they're going to be fisher for men. You know what I mean? Like, it's easy for us to just go, oh, yeah, I see the humour there. Jesus is being cute. And, and move on with it and not get into what it really is talking about, what it really means. There is a level, I think, to which it is speaking into the vocation of these guys. They are fishermen, after all. And in this way, I think this is Jesus doing one of his classic things. He has a tendency to speak in parables, right? To tell stories to explain things rather than just giving clear instructions. And often those stories are to do with the situation he finds himself in. He's walking along with a bit of people. He looks at a a field of wheat and a parable comes out about wheat that teaches something about the kingdom of God. He's talking to people in a situation, they ask him a question and he pulls out a situation like an everyday life kind of situation and gives it a twist that teaches something. So in some ways this is probably kind of parabolic Jesus language. He sees these fishermen and when he calls them he uses the language of fishing to do so. I think part of the reason that it's speaking to the vocation of these men is if you look over again in Mark to chapter 2 when he calls Levi uh, the tax collector, he doesn't say, Levi, you're a tax collector, come with me and be a fisher for men. Which, I mean, admittedly, that's not quite as sharp, is it? It doesn't quite have the same kick. What he does do, though, is hang out with a bunch of tax collectors and sinners. This is in Mark chapter 2, verse 15. Uh, And him and his disciples he's already called are hanging out with these people. And the Pharisees see them and say, why are you hanging out with these bad people? Why are you calling these sort of people to be your disciples? Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So in some ways, the calling of Levi speaks into Levi's vocation. And the calling of these fishermen speak into their vocation. So... You don't want to stretch the analogy, but you can kind of see what Jesus is doing with these guys. He's he's taking something that they're already doing and he is sort of twisting the language and saying, now this, this, now this. Let's build on that a little bit. I think it's helpful to understand this, to have some ideas of how people fished in the day. I know, I think most of us are smart enough not to do this, but I think it can be easy for people to hear this line, I will send you out to fish for people, and our head fills with our imagery of fishing. Sitting on a pier with a rod, you know, it's, it's a nice sort of gentle activity. It's a hobby, isn't it? It's something that you do when you have time. You might, I'm from Tassie, and we used to fish all the time. And basically you didn't do anything, you sat with Dad, and he cast the rod for you because you couldn't do it, and then you sat and then you feel something and you whine too quickly and the fish gets off, maybe you get a flathead. If you were lucky, you'd be doing something a bit more interesting, like squidding. Has anyone been squidding, fishing for squid? Yep, I saw one hand. I see that hand. Um, and that's a, you know, that was a bit more fun because there was a bit more action in it. Obviously, that's not what we're talking about here, right? These guys are fishermen for a living, and it is a hard job. These guys are casting out nets, big nets, by hand, from a boat and then pulling them back in, pulling them up onto their boat or if they're close enough to the shore, pulling them onto the beach and then sorting through them and there's some some fish that they want and there's some fish they don't want. They're throwing back the things they don't need and they're doing this over and over and over again. Their hands are getting raw, they have calluses, they're bleeding, they have to fix by hand the holes in their net and they have to keep going until they have enough fish for their family survival. We see stories in the Gospels of the disciples fishing all night and still not getting enough to live off. 
This is a hard job. So when Jesus says, I will send you out to fish for people, it's not like a nice hobby in the back of these guys' head. It's this is the grind of everyday work. This is back-breaking, hand-tearing work. And it also has sort of a political edge to it because Jesus is saying, I will send you out to fish for people. These guys were living in a time in history and in a part in the world where they didn't have property rights. This lake where they were fishing in, it belonged to their leaders. The fish that they were pulling out of it, it belonged to their leaders. So everything that they, by their hands, pulled out of it, they had to pay taxes on. A certain amount of that belonged to the government. They're pulling out fish to try and survive, to make enough to sell to or to swap to get the other things they need to live. And they also have to give a bunch of it to oppressive Roman leaders who have come into their country and taken over them. They're fishing for themselves to survive, but they're also fishing for themselves to try to survive underneath an oppressive Roman government. And Jesus says to them, come fish for me instead. You see what he's asking them to do? Come fish with me. Stop fishing for your family. Stop fishing to look after your loved ones. Stop fishing for your Roman overlords. Come fish for me. Jesus is asking them to do a pretty big thing. And there's also a biblical background to this. Let me read to you from Jeremiah chapter 16. In Jeremiah 16, 16 to 18... uh, This is a bit of the prophecy in Jeremiah that is likely titled in your Bible something like the day of disaster. And it reads uh, Jeremiah prophesying, But now I will send for many fishermen, declares the Lord, and they will catch them. After that I will send for many... Every mount, uh, I will send for many hunters and they will hunt them down on every mountain and hill and from the crevices of the rocks. My eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their sin concealed from my eyes. I will send for many fishermen and they will catch them. In the Old Testament, fishing is a metaphor for God's judgment. For God coming into the world... And setting things right. For God bringing about his purposes. For God looking at people and going, are you following me or not? For saying the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus pulls on this idea in Matthew in a parable that's sometimes called the parable of the net. He says, once again, this is Matthew 13, verse 47, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what does it mean to fish for people? It means to be a disciple of Jesus, to follow Jesus, to become like Jesus and to do what Jesus did to announce that the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. It's to get on board with what Jesus is doing and has done in the world and to, as he says in Matthew 28, to share that with all the nations.
Jesus says, come follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. Now that gets a little bit abstract when Jesus isn't standing in front of you on the beach calling you to do it. When you're 2,000 odd years removed from Jesus standing before you in the flesh. So what does it mean today to be a disciple of Jesus, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, to do what Jesus did? And that is a big question. Like I said, my small group has been spending six months and we're still doing it on and on and on and on on this question. So in some ways, there's not an easy, meaningful, simple way to answer that question. What does it mean to be a discipleship for Jesus today? Uh, Because there's lots of questions and there's lots of answers. Let me spend a bit of time, though, just a few minutes focusing on, on one question and a few answers. I think in some ways we, can, we get the become like Jesus bit. We, sort of, we, can, we can understand what that might look like. It's why we go to church, it's why we go to small groups, why we read our Bibles, all those sort of things. The do what Jesus do bit, I think we find that bit a little bit easier to conceive in our heads. They're a little bit more abstract. It's a bit more about us doing things. I think it can be harder, though for us to answer the what does it mean to be with Jesus? How do we follow after Jesus? We can't go everywhere that he goes. We're not, there's not a physical person to follow. There is no dust sort of rising that we can go and get covered in. So, so that's the sort of the question I want to look at. What does it mean to, to be with Jesus, to actually follow Jesus in something like a literal sense of that word follow today? How do we be with Jesus I think one answer is we follow followers of Jesus. In his letter to the Corinthians, his first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 11, Paul says this, he says, imitate me as I in turn imitate Christ. It's this idea that Jesus is not physically with us now, but you have me and I'm following Jesus and you follow me. And and throughout history, there's this Generation and generations and generations of people who have followed after Jesus, going right back to when he was standing there physically in front of them. So we follow people who follow Jesus, which in shorthand is you can't do this on your own. You've got to be around other people. You have to be tied into a community. You have to be tied into a church of people who are together uh, encouraging each other Uh, uh, being with each other and following each other as they in turn follow their leaders, who in turn follow others, who in turn follow right back to Jesus himself. Secondly, we follow the Holy Spirit. Near the end of uh, John's Gospel, when Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, he says um, that if you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. All this I have spoken while still with you. He's, he knows he's going to be going. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Jesus goes, but he sends someone to be with us. He sends the Holy Spirit. And in fact, he calls the Holy Spirit another advocate. As in, I've been your advocate up to this point. I'm sending you another advocate. In some ways, you could even say, I'm sending you another me. You're having me present with you through the Holy Spirit. We follow each other. We follow the Holy Spirit. And finally, let's get it a little bit even more practical. 
if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to follow anyone, if we're going to do anything, we have to make the time to do it, right? I don't know if you read this, the sort of stats about how people spend their time, but if you combine together the amount of time that the average Australian spends at work, spends asleep, and spends in front of a screen, you don't have an awful lot of time left over for doing anything else. Now, admittedly, there's some crossovers between those things, right? You might be spending time with your family and a screen. Some of that screen time might be spent at work. And maybe you guys aren't the average Australian. <coughs> maybe you're not. But if you look at how you're, you're spending your time, do you have a lot of time to follow Jesus? Do you have a lot of time to spend with your family and your friends? Do you have a lot of time for your hobbies? I think more of us are closer to the average than we would like. We spend more time in front of a screen, we spend more time at work, and then we fit in as much sleep as we can in the time left over. And it doesn't leave us an awful lot of time for much else. So if you want one really practical thing to take home with you, it'd be to take stock of what your week looks like and go, in this, how much time do I actually spend with any sort of conscious effort of being a disciple, of being a follower of Jesus? Maybe count that up in your head. Minutes, hours, if you're lucky. And then do the basic math of working out how many hours are in a week and putting some percentages in front of you. I don't know if you like doing this. We, we just did this with our budget. It's really painful when you see the actual numbers up in front of you, when you see the percentages and go, oh, I spend that much doing this, and I spend that much doing that. If you look at your week, your day-to-day, and go, do I actually have time to follow Jesus? You're not in the same situation as these disciples. You're not in a situation where you can drop your nets and get up and follow the actual physical Jesus standing in front of you on the beach and leave everything and devote 24-7. But you can look at how you spend your time and go, am I giving enough time, focus, thought, heart into this idea of being a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus? Or is it sitting in the lower percentages of how I spend my week? Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look more into this idea of being a follower of Jesus. And the next uh, couple of sermons are going to get into some more detail and some more of the nitty-gritty. But I want to finish today by reading two bits of Scripture to you. The first is uh, what we've already read. From Mark chapter 1, the first chapter of Mark, what most people think is the first gospel that was written down. And then I'm going to read from the last chapter of John's gospel, what many people think was the last gospel that was completed. In Mark 1, Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon, that's Peter, and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. (coughs) Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. At the end of John's Gospel, after Jesus has died, 
and after he's appeared to Thomas, we read this. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples did not realise that it was Jesus. And he called out to them and he said, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, he took the bread and gave it to them. And he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to them, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things and you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Discipleship is a lifelong journey. And it is a journey that will take our entire lives. Thanks, John.